I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 61 of Caro Pot. Our guest this week is a fantastic singer who sounds equally at home on the main mic or providing sublime harmonies, Kelly Hogan. She has worked as a solo artist and sung with many bands, including the Jody Grind, Rocketeens, the Pine Valley Cosmonauts, and currently the Flat Five. She also recently came off tour with Mavis Staples and previously recorded and toured with Nico Case and the Decemberists. Everyone loves working with her, and when you hear her sing, and when you hear her talk, you understand why. I first saw Hogan in the early 1990s at South by Southwest when she was in the Jody Grind, a band that sprung from Atlanta's artsy Cabbage Town neighborhood. The music, as captured on the debut album, One Man's Trash is Another Man's Treasure, was parts jazz, swing, twang, and rock, and the front woman was mesmerizing, a smoky-voiced torch singer who rocked. Virtue is a thing that defies easy measure. But soon after the release of the Jody Grind's second album, 1992's Lefty's Deceiver, a drunk driver smashed into a van carrying two band members back from a Florida show, killing them both, plus another friend of the band. As Hogan recounts here, she and guitarist-songwriter Bill Taft, who had stayed an extra night in Pensacola, were devastated. They ended the band and continued to work together on other projects, including Hogan's 1996 solo debut album, The Whistle Only Dogs Can Hear. Hogan also joined the Rocketeens, a pile-driving band fronted by Chris Lopez, before she moved to Chicago and decided to abandon music altogether. But Chicago is the wrong city in which to give up music. There are too many talented people who want to collaborate, especially if they know how talented you are. How did she go from working publicity for Bloodshot Records to getting back on stage? How did she wind up performing and recording with John Langford of the Nikons and Waco Brothers in another band, the Pine Valley Cosmonauts? You do yourself harm And you cause yourself pain I used to believe How did Mavis Staples first hear Hogan sing, and how did that lead to Hogan recording and touring with the soul gospel legend? When did Hogan begin to collaborate with Nora O'Connor, her flat five bandmate, and how is it they sing so beautifully together? Why is the flat five particularly magical when it performs live? What's the status of Hogan's long-term collaboration with Nico Case? How did Hogan enjoy recording and touring with the Decemberists for two album cycles? Hogan also discusses interpreting other songs versus writing her own. Robin Hitchcock wrote the title track of her excellent 2013 album, I Like to Keep Myself in Pain, which also featured contributions from Andrew Bird, Vic Chestnut, and Robbie Fultz. I like to keep myself in pain. Does she have another solo album in the works? Hogan, who now lives in Wisconsin, was staying at her friend's Northside apartment when she and I spoke there in person. Hogan's two dogs, Eddie and Ernie, were cuddled up next to her on the couch, sometimes double-decker. Hogan is quite fond of dogs, as you may have heard. 
It's hard not to get swept up in her enthusiasm as she describes the joys of singing. So let yourself get swept up and enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Kelly Hogan. It's sharp as a knife, but I ain't quite ready to cough up my life. Oh, you got a quarter, no one to call. There's no elbow room behind the eight I wake up singing a different song every day. It, like I'd never sometimes I'll know like oh I heard that on me TV radio or I or I'm thinking about this or I'm learning a song and sometimes it's hot dogs armor hot dogs what kinds of kids eat armor hot dogs and I'm like what is wrong with me there's always a song in my head all the, like right now while we're talking has that so. been true like since you were a little kid since I can remember yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. there's some songs in my head but you wake up with a different one. A different one. Well, I had I had Petula Clark. Don't sleep in the subway. I was going like to say that's Petula that, Clark, that was right? like three days running. Don't sleep in the subway. And sun. it was because I now you can stream me TV radio. So I was listening to it while I was doing dishes in Wisconsin. It was Petula Clark's birthday, and they were playing her songs. But then, but then, yeah, it'll be something really inane. And God forbid, it's like one eight seven seven cars oh, for no, kids. No. But that'll get in there. You know. Well, that one that one gets in with everyone. Yeah. I put that on Facebook recently when I suddenly realized that that song is rigged. I saw that. And, and, I was and like, all these people are like, no. <laughs> so you always wake up with songs in your head. Yeah, I do have, every day. Have the, have the types of songs changed over the years? Um. Well, I guess. I mean, I guess probably when I was in first grade, it was what was on my, I got a record player for Christmas, I think when I was in kindergarten. So like Christmas of 1970, because I would try to... Um, we had, you know, those big console uh, record players with right. the big thing. It's like a coffin, like the lid opens up and you put a stack of, you know, stack of LPs in there. And I used to go over there and like my mom said, I actually, the first time I pulled myself up, you know, like babies, it's like, oh, they pulled themselves up. It was on the record player. But then I would, sometimes would rock on it and the lid would slam on my fingers. Ouch. And so they eventually got me my own little record player. And so... Probably then, it, my record player came with, uh, my favorite song was Tiger by the Tail by Buck Owens. So I had Tiger by the Tail, Crying Time Again by Buck Owens, a whole bunch of Sesame Street records. So probably, I still know all the words to I Love Trash by Oscar the Grouch. It's a great song, and I identify with it. As, well, you've covered Rubber Ducky. Yeah, I've co- that was at Rob Miller's request, because I had already recorded um, Rob Miller, president of Bloodshot Records, and... Um, I had recorded Senor Don Gato, which was my favorite song in fifth grade. And then he was so upset that nobody had picked Rubber Ducky. He's like, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> like, will you do Rubber Ducky? So I went in and did Rubber Ducky as if Julie London was recording it. I think, well, I think you say something like, let's get wet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was making it very, <laughs> I was, you know, if the parent, the parents, as an ex-nanny, like the parents have to listen to the songs that the kids are listening to. to right. Me, so, but yeah. Come on, let's get wet. <laughs> so, and you grew up in Georgia. But, yep, Atlanta. but you were not in. Were you? Did you grow up in Atlanta, or did you move to Atlanta? Um, no, I was born like epicenter Atlanta, Georgia Baptist Hospital, like right there. I just drove past it recently. Still there, and then um, eventually we moved out to the suburbs in fourth fourth grade. And like out west, but it's still I, the Atlanta metro area. Yeah, yeah, Atlanta metro, definitely bona fide. 
And then, and then as a young adult, you wound up in Cabbage Town? Yeah, yeah, that's where the weirdos were, and it was cheap rent. It was an old um, mill village. of a def- It was a defunct, abandoned cotton mill. And my family on my dad's side worked at a cotton mill in Atlanta, but it was, I found out later when I moved to, cot- to Cabbage Town, my great-uncle JT was like, I can't believe you moved in there amongst them. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, those are our enemies, because they, they were Excelsior Mills, and I'm moved into what used to be the Fulton Bag Mill area, and I guess they used to rumble. And Ooh. and my great uncle JT, he's like, if I went back over there, even to this day, they'd probably somebody would kick my ass. Anyway, I digress. But yeah, <laughs> Cabbage Town was an old, crappy neighborhood with like little shotgun houses where musicians could afford to live. But right when I was moving out, they were turning the factory into lofts. So I left in April. April 1st, 96, 97. And I couldn't have afforded to live there much longer. Now it's all fancy schmancy. But at the time it was known as like sort of the cheap Mm-hmm. housing for this cotton mill right well yeah it was well the and cotton then, mill and then later yeah the I, that went mill, out of business yeah but. it's cotton mill went out of business like late 70s and so then it was just kind of a place where artists and musicians lived because it was cheap so at that point like were you someone who listened to music all the time and what kind of music oh yeah did you were you, oh. were you more sort of country or soul or pop or anything everything because you're because you're very eclectic in general so i I, everything like what came first every ever since i was a kid like music i was just like and then and then once i started singing definitely it was just huge for me it was everything it still is it's everything to me except for dogs (laughs) and i'm touching a dog right now yes we have two dogs we have two dogs on the couch (laughs) with kelly you want to introduce them um i'm scratching the right armpit of Ernie Hogan. He is a Boston Terrier mystery date mix from Tennessee. And he's 13 and he's deaf. He's sleeping. And Eddie... He looks very happy. Yes, he's really happy. And then Ernie uh, Eddie Hogan, who is... He's from Belvedere, Illinois. He was in a cage till he was almost two because he looks kind of like... Uh, a weird gargoyle and Ernest <laughs> Borgnine, which is, that's my dream date right there. That's my type. So I came along and took him home. He, he rooted under the covers. He's he's over here under the covers with his underbite and his organic mohawk. And uh, you can see him on my Instagram. He gets lots of likes. Hashtag Eddie Spaghetti. So, so the one that should have been named after Ernest Borgnine is not. I was going to name him Steve Buscemi, but he was in the cage for till he was almost two, and he had been Eddie his whole life. So his oh, okay. real, his whole name is Eduardo Stefano Buscemi Spaghetti. So, yeah, I liked I like when dogs have names like Kevin or Steve. So it would crack me up. To like, <laughs> but Eddie's close and Eddie's still a little cutie pie. So, but Steve, you Steve, stop rolling in that squirrel. <laughs> Kevin, stop licking your balls. You know what I mean? It, it cracks me up. Rhonda. <laughs> So the first time I saw you, you had like a little white terrier or something. Oh, it was, black and white. That was Augie. Yeah, that was their predecessor. She that was, was that would have been like ninety one or something like that. Yeah. So I so the first time I saw you was at South by Southwest. It might have been the first one I went to, which was in ninety one, and the Jody Grind played at a place, and I think I even remember the name of it. I think it was called Chances, but it was like a tent with rocks on the Yeah, it was floor. like a volleyball, like sand court yes. outside. So I remember oh, yeah. Cott from the Tribune and I were sitting on these rocks or this like kind of large yeah. gravel mm-hmm. watching you 
sing these kind of torchy songs and soul songs and country songs and were totally like knocked out by oh it. man that's awesome yeah i remember that vividly that was me and oh that was that was quite a night me and bill taft my guitar player from that band had went and got a bottle of, like a bat wing of old crow and we sat in a drainage ditch and drank it before our show because we were nervous and wow. there was like a there was like a street photographer where you could have your picture taken and we have a there was a picture that we had taken which the it was so i wish i it finally just faded completely away like it was super cheap but yeah we used it me and bill taft used that photo for our, our when we had a duo after the jody grind called kick me but it was me and him like in thrift store suits and it, it looks like i'm strangling a squirrel in the picture but it's my fist around the paper bagged bottle of <laughs> crow that we were holding so and then yeah and then we played that show yeah and it was of like outdoor sand volleyball yeah it was like it was outdoor it was i was like this is a club this just well, seems it, like a the tent first on time a, we played south yeah. by southwest the year before 1990 we played um an auto body shop because they needed venues like because it was still a really new it was much festival. smaller it was super small but they needed so they were turning anything into a venue and so that's we played some kind of like car repair shop and that's when um for some reason, Poydog Pondering, the guys from Poydog, had come because they were going to see the band after us and saw us. And then that's how we ended up, we got asked to open for them like that summer. I just did a session last night with Poydog Pondering with Ted Cho, who's who I met like that summer in 1990. Wow. And I'm still like friends with all those amazing people. And that just it was life changing. That's when South by Southwest used to work like it was doing what it was supposed to do i mean maybe it still does but you know now they have the big profile high profile shows and it's like if you're in line to go see tom waits you're not going to see joe blow and the joe blosephines like right. at an auto shop i love the joe blosephines <laughs> right so yeah josephine blow and the right but so that was more where it was just still grassroots and no i think it was like because i had a press pass because i was covering it i mean it was back when the tribune could send two people down and Ooh. i was doing some feature Did you stories have an expense and account could you buy a margarita on the tribs yeah, like greg and i shared a we, sh- we shared a hotel room but, oh, we, sure. but you were like the discovery of that that oh, festival we're so like crazy. wow that the jody grind that kelly hogan oh my god what oh, a voice man. you know and, and and i remember like then seeing you like around walking and i, ch- I chatted with you i'm just like where did you you know i was probably asking you the stuff i'm asking you now um and but, but you always had the little dog with you yeah that was augie good old augie yeah she well because I had a pit bull named Chainsaw before her, and I didn't name, <laughs> you name him. A pit bull Chainsaw. I, I didn't name him. He was a rescue because, and he was a total chicken. He was chicken livered, and so it was kind of hilarious. So I just kept his name, Ch- Chainsaw. Come on, it's just the mailman. Come out from under the bed, little buddy. Come here, Steve. Come yeah. here, Chainsaw. <laughs> I know. So yeah, Chains. After Chainsaw passed away my mom got me Augie as a birthday present and it was like I was leaving on tour like that day so I was like okay I guess you're going on tour and so she was just with me all the time so yeah so Augie was pretty little like age wise as well as size wise at the time yeah no I got her when she was teeny weeny and and then she was about the size of a guinea pig and I remember because I in Atlanta I never had a car for like nine years I just had a Honda scooter so I put her in this little my little messenger bag on the side with her head sticking out and rode over to my friend's house look i got a new dog you know and she would she rode on my scooter all all over the place i used to bungee um a dog carrier on the back and we would ride like three hours out to my mom's house because you had to take back roads you can't take a honda 250 on the interstate you'd be crazy right so she she was yeah she was like 
well, he's deaf. He can't hear me say this, but Augie was the best dog ever. <laughs> and these guys are awesome. They're no slouch. And Chainsaw was great, but ask anybody. Ask Nico Case. Ask anybody. Augie was the bomb. I was impressed by Augie at the time, and that was a long time ago. We, so. Nico and I, well, I was I was in Nico Case's band, and we did a some, it's like, I can't remember his name, but it's like the David Letterman Show of Canada, whatever it was, in Toronto. And one of the other, we were in this big green room, and the other guest was a pet psychic. And I was putting on my makeup, looking in this mirror, and I could look in, in the mirror and see behind me that Augie and this pet psychic were sitting just like, like we are right now, like on a couch, and Augie was sitting there next to the pet psychic and the pet psychic was looking at Augie and Augie was looking up at this lady and so after I got my makeup done I came over and I was kind of joking like oh you know what'd she what'd she tell you and the lady was like pale and she said this dog is an old soul I was like oh I could tell you that she's like no 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 this dog is an old soul and she got up and like walked away she was freaked out wow that was it yeah she's she's just like this dog is something else she's seen things yeah so yeah weird and nico and i were like we knew that (laughs) augie's the oracle she was the oracle man she got us through the border acting cute a bunch of times (laughs) wow she did At what point did you realize that you could sing? Um, Girl Scout camp, 1976 or seven, I guess. I always liked it. And my mom said before I could make a full sentence, like I could sing a whole song. Like I knew all the songs on the radio and sing all the songs. And But um, I was painfully shy super painfully shy as a kid but then I was in Girl Scouts and because I I just I could remember like all the songs from the top 40 so we'd have campfire and be like what are we going to sing and we have Girl Scout songs you know make two friends and keep the old one is silver and the other gold and we do all the songs or uh you know songs about boogers and peanut butter sandwiches um but then I was at summer camp Camp Tanglewood in Georgia and we were going to have, we always do like when the parents come to pick you up after two weeks, we do like a little presentation or we do skits and they wanted me to sing a song and the counselors were, yeah, you Hogan, you got to sing or Kelly. My camp name was eggs. Cause I, cause I had a t-shirt with two fried eggs where my <laughs> boobs should be, except I was little. So the eggs were kind of down here at my belly, but that was my, so eggs, you got to sing at the going home ceremony. I was like, Oh no, I could never do that. I can, I'm too shy. And so when I was at swim class, they, they stole all my clothes and said, we're not going to give your clothes back until you agree to sing. So I walked around in my bathing suit for a couple days. And then, so I finally agreed to sing. Wow. And so I sang at the thing and, and I sang uh, memories from the way we were acapella to all the parents and brownies and Girl Scouts in like this big kind of log cabin lodge room. And I had my eyes closed and I remember like... Oh, and I was wearing cut-off shorts, barefooted, and I had a shirt on that said, Eat Beans, America Needs the Gas. <laughs> and that was Energy my, crisis It humor. was my favorite shirt. Yeah, this is like 1976. That's like, great. 76. And so I had my eyes closed, and then when I opened my eyes, I was singing, and I looked, and like everybody was just kind of like, 
they were quiet and watching me. And then some people were looking down and I realized I've been tapping my toe, like my bare foot and in time. And then when mm. I finished, everybody's like, yay. And I was like, huh, that's weird. That's weird. So it gave me confidence to go try out for chorus when I went back to school. It's like the first 10 minutes of your biopic. <laughs> that's very, like a really, that's a really like good story. It's like little darlings like, and like meatballs. Like they forced you to do it. They and stole the way we were. Funny girl yeah. mixed with meatballs. And yeah, it was. You know, like the build up. And then finally you had to overcome your fears and was, do it. And you blew everyone away. Well, and then when I, I did go to, because I had always, I wanted to be near it, but I was too scared to try out to sing. So I was always on stage crew because I like could paint and stuff. And and I love the chorus teacher, Miss Killian. I'm, we're friends to this day. I, I'm Aww. so glad to be friends with her. And I went to audition for her in her office, and I sang "Tomorrow" from Annie acapella. And when I got done, she was really quiet. She didn't say anything, and she was looking at me, and she was quiet for a minute. And I thought, oh man, I suck. And when she was like, she just said, "Where have you been all my life?" Wow. <laughs> And then came and hugged me. So, yeah, then that's when. And then she gave me a solo in the first concert and taught me how to practice singing into my curling iron or my hairbrush at home. So now, did you have dreams of being like a musical theater star or like a sort of, you know, a singer, you know, like in the spotlight or or someone who's like in a band? Um, mostly I just didn't care because I, I was in chorus and choir and all, I just loved anything to do with any type of music because I loved the feeling of when I got in chorus, I, I used to be singing along to the radio and my brother would punch me and he's like, you're, you're singing it wrong. And I realized after I learned about harmony singing that I was just harmonizing mm. to the radio because when I got in chorus once i tried out for miss killian and got in chorus i was like harmony to me was like it's still my drug of choice like i gotta have it the pandemic like i was getting the shakes because you can't you can you know garage band with people but you you need to sing in the air with somebody so that was my drug of choice and and learning about harmony and all of that stuff because in fact i'd rather do that I would rather do that than be the lead singer. I'd rather be harmonizing with somebody. And plus, since I have been the lead singer, like kind of the pressure. I don't there's good things about it too, but I like it all. I want it all. Yeah, well no, I was gonna I'm gonna ask you about sort of the whole harmony collaboration part of it. But 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 early on you, mm -hmm. you just you loved singing. Yeah. But you didn't have like sort of thoughts of I wanna be like the next like Barbara Streisand no, or she, Joni Mitchell or no, I liked Bar Barbara Streisand, and my stepmom's records were like Carly Simon and um, Carol King. I love Carol King. But I still was such a, you know, I always had tape on my glasses, and I never considered that I would be able to be the front person. So, but then, and I like musical theater, but I liked everything. And my dad had a lot of soul records. And I grew up listening to country music at my grandma's house. She would keep us while my, while our parents worked. And but I just I, yeah, I still I was never like I'm gonna be a star. No, it's not like that at all. I just wanted to sing. So now you've moved to Cabbage Town, which yeah. is a very artistic community, and it's, it seems like there were a lot of bands and a lot of kind of cross pollination of oh, completely everyone playing with each other completely. and doing art things and having spoken word performances and bands and all of that. Yeah. So, like, how did you sort of find your place in that? That's where I found my weirdos. Yeah, I found my tribe there, my my folks. Um, it's because I met Bill Taft of the Jody Grind, and 
because I was, I sang in cover bands, and I, I remember thinking <laughs> when I first started singing in bars, I sang in a bar Thanksgiving night when I was 17 with what I was like, a bunch of old jazz dudes, they were probably 25 years old, and sang like Stormy Weather and stuff like that, and um, and then I started hanging in with those guys and, and doing cover bands or wedding bands, and I was, I was working at um, PDK, which is a, it's called an FBO, it's one of the smaller airports, like Pewaukee or something in Chicago, and I was you know, I'm like, I'm meeting a lot of pilots. I'm not meeting a lot of musicians. You know, I, it was like, I called it, it's my last pantyhose job I ever had. Mm. I, I didn't have it very long because I've done everything else. But um, so I quit and I ended up couch surfing. Like I didn't have any money. I wasn't living anywhere. And, but then I went to, I started going to see bands all the time and all these different crappy clubs. And I met Bill Taff like three, three weeks in. I started working at a record store, a chain record store, Turtles in Atlanta. And but I remember going to see this band, Mouthful of Bees, at this place that used to be <laughs> Lum's Hot Dogs. Lum's Hot Dogs boiled in beer. I remember our dad used wow. to take us there and we're like, We're not eating these, they've been boiled in beer. But some and then Bill Taft sat down and we started talking and he's like, What kind of music do you like? And I said, Well, I've been listening to some Hoagie Carmichael. Hoagie Carmichael, that's exciting. <laughs> and then he came to see me at Turtles where I worked, and then he had a night at this one club called Evening with the Garbage Man on a Monday and people would come sit in and through him i just i met that's how i found my my people all my weirdos and, and he heard you sing and was like oh we should do something yeah well he because he had come up he was playing blues he was in a band called the crawling king snakes and played this bluesy guitar but he he had just sort of gotten into like duke ellington and hoagie carmichael and stuff so so we bonded there and the jody grind was like we I mean, even when we get taken to dinner by record labels, it was like, you're too eclectic. We don't know where to put you in the record store because we would do all because we loved all kinds of music. They do this kind of torchy stuff. Yeah, and all kinds of stuff. And so, anything else. yeah, with me and Bill, we both had our machetes out just kind of whacking our way through the jungle and just, you know, any kind of music, just trying it on and seeing how it felt to do it. So, had and you, then started. Had you written any songs at that point? Never. And I never, I was just getting to that. I never even thought it, it never occurred to me. Ever, ever, ever. And Bill, we were getting a piece of pizza or something one day at Fellini's. And when he was leaving, he's like, he threw this cassette on the table. And I was like, what's this? And he's like, ah, it's just some, you put some words, just some guitaring. You put some wordings on it and we'll see if we can write some songs. I was like, I don't write songs. He's like, just do blah, blah, blah. So that's when I would put it on and like shave my legs to it and cook to it and started putting words on it. And that's how we wrote songs for the Jody Grind. But it never... I never would have written a song if he hadn't a, I just, because I had no confidence or didn't think I was, I was that kind of person. I still don't. So, so still, you were doing lyrics and he was doing music or were you putting yeah. the melody on it too? I was putting or? the melody on it. Okay. He just, he would just do chord progressions. So yeah. Cause I like, I, I make up melodies in my head all the time. I guess I had been doing that with not, you know, if I, if somebody's car alarm's going off, my brain just like, it's like beep, beep. And I'm like, like I start my brain so starts doing oh I harmonize with the vacuum cleaner like I harmonize with everything so but I guess yeah I started I wrote melodies and words to it so that's how that worked and um, yeah and then yeah then I just started hanging out with all those people and then when I moved to Cabbage Town right after that then there you go 
like what were your aspirations with the Jody grind? Like, did you think, oh, we're going to get like major label and do all this stuff? Or was it just kind of, no, no, I mean, just, you're playing South by Southwest. So you're, you're doing something in the industry. Obviously. Yeah. That just all sort of, it just snowballed. Cause we were just going along, just playing and we just were like, wow, we want to get a show in Athens. So we got a show in Athens. Yeah. All right. You know, at the downstairs, which is a little smaller than this living room we're sitting in right now. And we loved it. And then maybe we could play a show in, uh, Greenville, South Carolina. Yeah, we got a show in Greenville. And so we started touring and we really just wanted to play. We weren't thinking about records at all. And the first record we made, actually, our friend Jim Johnson had come into like inherited some money from a relative and he's like I well I want to I love your band I want to let's make some demos so we went up to John Keane's in Athens and made demos of our original songs and some cover tunes and that ended up becoming our first record really one man's just, trash is another man's yeah, treasure so that was it was just demos I had like, that on vinyl oh yeah right I think I only I only have a test pressing so but yeah and so we went up and did that at John Keane's and that was my first time well not quite I guess I had recorded a few things before but mostly like in a barn singing in a bathroom you know but uh that was the first real studio thing i'd ever done and then yeah it just really snowballed and then yeah then all of a sudden we had like a manager and a publishing deal which i didn't even know what that was and yeah when we went to south by southwest like mtv interviewed us over there at the embassy suites by the river where everybody because that's where it was before the convention center right. remember like the oh man remember that band like titty bingo had put its stickers everywhere <laughs> and like there were escalators up from like the lobby and they had stuck them on the arm like the little handrails and so you'd be on the escalator and like titty bingo would be coming around <laughs> on the little black handholder. i don't know why those guys didn't make it titty bingo <laughs> i mean they were they had they had some kind of crazy marketing idea. Those stickers were, be big. were everywhere. That was crazy. So I don't even think we were just so we just had our heads down doing it. We weren't really we we didn't be like okay we're gonna do this. All, at, at one point, like we were having to make some decisions, and we I remember we had a band meeting. Like uh, we drew up sort of our inner band constitution, like what we will do and what we won't do. Because I remember Spin Magazine wanted us to do to be in this like new bands, but it was it was like also a fashion thing where we'd be wearing clothes and it was something clothes like, not of your choosing. Yeah, or you know stuff we might wear, but just like it was also going to be in there wearing blah blah blah. Right. And I remember our bass player Robert Hayes, he was like, "Fuck no, we're not doing that. That's that's stupid." And and so there's the thing of like in a band, you know, you vote. So it was we all, three of us wanted to do it, and he didn't want us to do it. But we also developed the rule that if somebody is vehement enough, then one vote can outweigh the other. So we never did the Spin Magazine thing. And I remember like the record label was like, "How can you not do this? It's just you know a picture, and you can just di dictate how you look in the picture. Right. You're not you don't have." to it's not going to be a brand name but anyway he was he said no but that's also how i was outvoted and my husband became our manager and that's not cool that was not cool either so i got outvoted on that and that was that was it was a bad rule that that vehemence rule it was very bad wait you got outvoted on yeah like teddy my husband at the time wanted to be our manager 
And I was like, that's not a good idea. It's, you know, don't. And you do got it. outvoted on that? that? I think that's why the vehemence rule came into effect because oh, okay. I got outvoted on that. And then. Yeah, you got so. vote, outvoted on your husband becoming your manager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone else wanted him. And yeah, you're the one. Like, Usually it works the other way. Right? No. Like in Spinal Tap, it's no, like, you no. know. I was like, no, this is not, you know, you don't, you're not supposed to date somebody in your band. And you're, right. Yeah. No, well, no I'm, if, if, I feel like if the, the spouse of the person doesn't want that person managing them, that would be like, the yeah, right. You'd VO. think, you'd How think, would, well, but then you know things. Do you ever like think back about like your twenties and thirties, and you realize like how fast things were happening? I know it, it's mind-boggling how fast things were changing and things were happening, and so things were just happening really fast. So, but no, we never had any aspirations, and we like like Frank Riley, Booker guy, took us to dinner, and he ended up booking us, and that's when things changed, where we he put us on tour with Boy Dog, and that was the first time. I think any of us had been west of the Mississippi, hmm. you know, that was wild. We took a day off to go see the Grand Canyon and stuff. None of us had been out there or seen the desert or anything. So, and then things were going along and we had a bunch of tours. We did two big long tours with Robin Hitchcock and that, like that, that was great. That was perfect. Cause talk about bizarre and indescribable and me and robin are still super good friends to this day he wrote a song for you yeah he did a really good one i used it as my album title i know that's a great title i like to keep my uh i like to keep myself in pain yeah he nailed it and actually in that song when i'm singing it i'm singing about my about the jody grind i'm not singing about a person i'm singing about my friends who are who i lost so right so yeah yeah um, so 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 you and bill were like not with them and then there's this horrible yeah drunk Bill driving I, car crash we, yeah we our second album came out that midweek of april like the ides of april 92 and so we played a huge album release party in atlanta variety playhouse and then the next weekend we went down to do our usual panhandle florida because we would always do jacksonville and pensacola and uh tallahassee so we went and boop 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 and then yeah we played the last place we played was pensacola at sluggos and then yeah our manager mark kaufman was with us from la and we had had oh no i guess we played mobile because we went back to whatever hotel room that we kept in mobile me and bill went back to mobile with mark because we were going to ride back with him the next day oh i know why too because we had a new drummer and he wanted to leave right after the show to get back it was easter sunday so we played that saturday and he wanted to get back for sunrise service with his family Mm. and i was i always was like fuck no i'm not driving i don't want to get back to atlanta 5 a.m we got a hotel room and so we drove back and so that's why they were driving back so and yeah then a drunk driver hit them and killed rob and robert and our friend deacon so yeah but bill and i didn't know till the next day when we got back to atlanta so because before cell phones and right and a lot of like when i got back i found out like Bill's wife and my boyfriend, like, they didn't know if we had been in the van. Like, nobody knew really anything wow. until until we got home. So, it's weird. So, yeah, that happened. And you and Bill continued on, but not in another Jody yeah, it Yeah, it's, um, well, because I remember, I remember we got back to the practice space, me and Bill, and Deacon's truck was still there, and we and we were like, 
that's weird or like you know maybe they broke down or or they could be in jail because deacon had pot you know or something and then we didn't but we didn't think oh because they hadn't come back together yeah because so we got because we had all parked at the practice space and my scooter was in the practice space and i went and got my scooter and i was like okay bill see you later we always would practice on thursdays and I remember like going to the video store and getting some videos. Oh, cause my boyfriend too, his band, they were, they were supposed to have left the night before. So I'm like, cool. I can watch any movie I want. He's gone for a week. I went and got videos, but I remember driving through Cabbage Town and I saw when I passed this one house where, where we would always practice. And I saw Jennifer and Alan sitting on the porch who were in my boyfriend's band. I'm like, that's weird. They're still here. Why aren't they gone? And I kind of waved at them, and they just kind of looked at me. It was really strange. And then mm. I got home, and then Chris was there, and he told me what had happened. And, oh, wow. Yeah, and then Bill came over because he got home, and his wife told him what happened. And then Bill just came over to my house, and I'm still kind of, I don't even know, lots of screaming and stuff. But then when he left, he was leaving my house. He said, okay, well, I'll see you Thursday. And I said, what for? And he said, band practice. And I said, okay. So he and I just kept meeting every Thursday, not at first, not to practice or anything, but we would just go to our practice space and, and then eventually like to his house or just like drink wine and stuff. But then we started making songs together. He and I, that's the most prolific songwriting I'd ever done. So with me and Bill then, and we, first it was just like, it was just like Kelly Hogan and Bill Taft. And I remember we played Tallahassee back on our panhandle turf and Bill was teaching himself how to play cornet and we found this parking deck with really good reverb and he was in a dumpster and he was playing he said teach me that song you've been singing which was the midnight sun your lips were like a red and ruby chalice with all the chromatic dissension he's like sing it again warmer than the summer night and he'd go in this dumpster and these drunk frat guys came up and started bothering us like hey man let me play your and we actually had to run like they were threatening wow. like kind of pushing bill and stuff and we ran and we found this bar and we went in the bar and i said okay i know what our name should be <laughs> and i said and because i've already seen the merch that our band is going to be called kick me and our name is going to be on the back <laughs> of the t-shirts and so that's what we were after that we were kick me that was our duo because we yeah, were like we're just asking for trouble when you when you kept meeting was it just important to sort of continue to absolutely be, be connected yeah. to music yep yeah and just to bill and yeah because he and i were the ones that were left and so yeah we just sit sometimes we wouldn't say anything or we'd listen to records or nothing and then we started writing songs but no that him bill's a bill's a wizard He's a wizard. For him to say like say that, what for? Band practice. Okay. Right. And then because we and we were like it was immediately clear it was never gonna be like the Jody Grind Mach two or something. That was gone. So but we just um I think our first gig was at Lollapalooza on a side stage. Wow. Yeah. Back so when we, Lollapalooza was a traveling yeah, tour, not yeah, like right. the Chicago thing. Yeah, when they came to Atlanta. Like one of the first ones, maybe maybe the first one. No, it was the second one. Second one, I think. What were the songs like that you two started writing when you finally got to writing? Um, I don't know. Very well. It was just really guitar and electric guitar and vocal, like really bizarre and empty. But and, was there like sort of a conscious shift in the kind of music you were making at that point? 
like I don't know there were no because we were just whatever was coming out and Bill we were still doing that thing where he would say here's some guitar progression and I remember I well and then I was writing about kind of what had happened right. there's some songs about that like what's the one um where I even talked about one of the last things I asked our bass player I was like hey I left my socks in the van and they're like a new pair of socks will you get my socks and I'll get them from you and like the last thing like and so in the song it's like I asked you to find my socks for me Ta-da! you know I had to find them myself and because they were hanging in a tree by where the van had wrecked and I saw my a sock was really? hanging on a branch yeah so so weird shit like that so little things and then so you actually went to the scene of it yeah we did about a week later yeah I, I did a tumble like decades later like about 10 years ago now or so I finally wrote about it so it was not easy to write about but I felt better when I did and it has a lot of details and stuff yeah we went down right after the wreck um I think my husband ex was he my ex-husband then yes my ex-husband and some friends of ours um went down to get whatever they could out of the van you know like merch and stuff and and robert's bass which was kind of broken he had upright bass broken into pieces and amps Mm. and stuff like that and then bill and i went down like a week later because my dad's a homicide detective i grew up policeman's daughter i always feel better the more i know about something so we went down just to see and it wasn't our van it was a loaner van our van was in the shop and the shop said well you can borrow this we like we got to go to these shows and here's our you can use this guy this mechanic has a van he uses for motocross but it was just a like a cargo van snub nose cargo van with a piece of shag carpet in the back so yeah we rode down there on it was like front two seats and then two folding chairs (laughs) And so we rode down on folding chairs on the way to go around the curve, like, whoa, and the chair would flip over and stuff. But that didn't have anything to do with the wreck because Bill and I weren't in there. Nobody was in the folding chairs and it was, you know, two people in front and Deacon was sleeping in the back in a sleeping bag. So, so yeah, but so, so we were writing, like I was singing about stuff that happened, but it's just real, just little like fingerprint songs, like just little, I didn't know how to write a song. I was just going along and it, it, the subject matter is just stuff about like me and my boyfriend at the time or breaking down in the van, like just stuff that was happening. And then it's, I mean, you can definitely hear when you listen to it, like which songs were kind of mine and which songs were kind of Bill's because Bill was more into like, we really liked like Sea Island singers or like stompy, stompy stuff. And his are more like, oh yeah, because one song, the accompaniment is just me stomping on this board. I used to, I was a little league cheerleader in like fifth and sixth grade. And I knew this kind of, oh, and he's like there's an old black coat in a crab apple tree behind the bank and so his are very weird kind of tom waitsy songs and mine are more la 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 but i was it was cool we just recorded in our friend's basement and i was learning that was i learned a whole lot about recording because I wasn't intimidated, you know, it was just us, like before with Jody Grind stuff. And because our second record we did with Michael Blair, he's a percussionist that had worked on swordfish trombones and other stuff. And so that was a little more pressurized. And I don't think I don't think I ever listened to that record because that was the record that came out right before everybody died. And I just haven't, I made it, but I right. don't think I've ever listened to it. So, so, but yeah, doing the stuff with Bill with Kick Me was very liberating. 
At what point did you join Rocketeens? Oh, man. 94, spring of 94. My favorite band I was ever in. Best thing I ever did f- musically for me personally. I learned so much. It flipped music upside down for me because I'm, I'm more like the singing and the melodies, like the frosting. And I was playing the bass parts on a guitar with one string. And so that's the bottom. And it was just like, it was a revelation for me. So, and plus, it was also a revelation as I, I wasn't the lead person, I wasn't the front person. And like, like when you're a singer and you start to get a sore throat and you've got a show coming up, you get super stressed out and you start to freak out. And then with Rock Teens, I was like, oh no, we got a show in Richmond. I'm feeling like I'm coming down with a sore throat. And then I'm like, I don't sing shit. Like I bought a big bottle of Robitussin and I had it on my amp and I was like, dug it, dug it, dug it, and like turning up my amp. And it's just like, I'm never listening to you guys complain ever again. Like, like side men, fuck all you guys. You just turn up, you know, singers can't do that. So I mean, it's a much more aggressive band than what you'd been. Yeah. Playing. Well, and yeah. it was great. Cause it wasn't my band too. Like we were, and that, and plus I guess when I'd been in a band, I'd always been the front person to that till then you know or as a duo with bill but it's great like that was my first time being in a band where you're lifting you're you're the bottom of the cheerleader pyramid you're like lifting this idea you're lifting you're following this vision because that band is definitely chris lopez chris lopez and he sang the songs too like he had you in the band but he was still singing them and the only and also because i didn't know how to play anything i was just i probably still have the little piece of spiral notebook paper where chris had written out these little places for me to put my hands i remember it was like instead of like one two three four like your fingers it was like pointy birdie little guy (laughs) like these little tiny chord things for me to learn but then i really just ended up playing one big fat e string you know not even that i was so melodically oriented like i would be trying to come up with the bottom parts and be like i can't play what i hear he's like no 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 do this do 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 and it was so it was just like a it was the best education i ever got how did you end up in that band um because um well i wanted to learn how to play guitar and me and chris we had been boyfriend and girlfriend for a long time we had broken up we were friends and he was gonna teach me how to do some guitar and then he had a band he was he had formed uh that hadn't had their first show yet. They were called the New Centurions. And um, everybody always practiced at that same 7-Eleven Wiley Street in uh, Atlanta. And then actually, uh, Alan, the drummer, passed away uh, like February 27, 94. He was the drummer for the New Centurions. And he was... We were super tight. He was, was Alan Page. Alan Page, and he and Chris Lopez were like high, friends since high school, and I like they were in. Alan was my drummer in my solo band at the time, and all this other stuff we were doing super tight. Everybody played in everybody else's band, and so I remember after Alan died, Chris like came over one day, maybe a month later, and he's like, "You still want to learn how to play guitar?" And I was like, "Yeah." And so we just started doing stuff, me and him, and then. And then old crazy Chris Vereen from DQE, Dairy Queen Empire. He, I don't, I forget how we got him into like doing the drums. He's he was younger than us and crazy and and so. But and then he said, "Oh, I know this other guitar player. He's about to graduate from college and he'll be back." So that was Justin Hughes, and Justin came and I remember on the way to the first band practice, he got in a car wreck. But or like you know he he just doesn't. 
he, he's thinking about guitar. One of those people who shouldn't drive because he's always... Anyway, I remember <laughs> he got in a fender bender on the way. He was late for practice. and But he's... So the rock teens just kind of flunk, like came together. And we weren't the rock teens yet. I remember Chris Vereen, like a couple months later, was like, I had a dream what our band should be called. And I couldn't even say it. So I wrote it on this piece of paper and he showed it to us. It was called the Rocketeens and red ballpoint pen. <laughs> and then, but we realized later he had probably been listening to or had encountered like Woohoo, the old band, the Rocketeens. There was a band called the Rocketeens that had this hit called Woohoo, <laughs> Woohoo. So, but we were the new rock teens. We were the rock teens. And then we became a band. And that was another thing where we weren't trying to, we were just trying to get it, you know, get it out. And and then it took off. So, because Chris, Chris Lopez, like his songwriting is really great. And his words are great. Especially like, I mean, Chris Lopez is a really great songwriter. So I think you're on two Rocketeens albums. Yep. And then... I moved to Chicago. You moved to Chicago. Yeah, and I I tried to stay in the Rocketeens because I thought, well, you know, we don't tour that much, and I'm going to come home visit family, but it just was too. It was a little too crazy. So, oh man, I cried through my whole last show with them. I cried. I didn't want to. I didn't want to not be in the Rocketeens. Well, what prompted but, you move to Chicago? Um, uh, a lot of th- I'd never lived anywhere else, and then just also with like. It's just too many ghosts, man. Like I had to go somewhere else and I kind of wanted to see if I could not do music. I moved here to kind of quit music. Mm. <laughs> Bad city to quit music. And well, and then I ended well, up good. working. I'm glad you moved here I to know, quit like, music. And then I ended up working for Bloodshot Records, you know? So really, I just wanted to work at the Crafty Beaver. I was a house painter at the time. I was like, I can work in the paint department, the Crafty Beaver. That cracks me up. But yeah, <laughs> but just because my boyfriend up here was friends with Rob Miller, and, and that's right when uh, Peter Babcock. Is that no is that his name their publicist had left him like you know like just left him a breakup note and so they were in the lurch and had a bunch of releases out and so they were like do you know how to do publicity i was like i've done it for my own bands so i got right. drafted and started working for bloodshot and that's how i met langford and that's how i started singing for bloodshot well the <laughs> rob miller i guess he had written for like his college paper and maybe he had reviewed like one of my older solo albums or something so he knew that i was a singer but I think Dale Watson played Shuba's maybe six months after I'd been working for Bloodshot. And we went to see Dale and Dale called me up and I did a song with with Dale Watson. And as I was walking off stage back to the bar, Rob Miller leaned over. He's like, you're fired because <laughs> he's like, you should be doing this and not that. You right. know, you should you should be singing. So had you already recorded um, uh, the whistle only dogs can hear? By the time you moved up here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did that down south. Yeah, yeah, that was my... I guess that's my first solo album. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no. And you was, and Bill had a bunch of songwriting, co-songwriting yeah, credits no, on that, too. Because um, that came out, like, April of 96, and I moved to Chicago a year later. Yeah. And then... So then, you had a solo album, yep. but you still were like, I'm just leaving this all behind. Yep, yep, yeah. I just, I just wanted to see... What is like in in Downton Abbey where the lady goes, "What is a weekend?" <laughs> like I was like, "What if I worked somewhere like nine to five and had some money, <laughs> and, you know, could put some meat on my ramen noodles and stuff like that?" I just I mean, wanted to see if I could do it. I mean, the '90s were this cool time in Chicago, in part because 
for me personally, at least musically, there were all these bands that I loved and they started moving to my town, you know, like I was a big Mekons fan. Yeah. And then I'm like, hey, John Lankford Merry moved Christmas. here. Merry Christmas. Sally Timms moved here. Yeah. Steve Goulding lives here. Right. Poor Dog Pondering I'd seen in Austin. They right. moved up here. Right. Um, you moved up here. Yeah. Sid Straw moved here. I was like a Golden Palominos fan. Yeah, so, me too. Me you know. too. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, yeah, it was a terrible place to quit music. It really was. It was the wrong, just, if you're going to quit music, don't come to Chicago in 1990, in the mid-90s, because everybody was here, and everybody there, it was so fertile and verdant, verdant, like, music. Everybody was playing with everybody, and... Did you like that? Yeah, I did. And and then, I mean, after, I came up here, and I was working at Bloodshot, and I guess, like, within six months, I was pretty miserable, like, the, not singing, because I, I would... It, with me, like I can go to any show, whether I like the music or not, I'm like, right on, you do it, you man, right on. And, and, but I would be going to shows at Shuba's or something and, and be kind of jealous, like, oh man, look at that, that lead singer lady. I think I could fit into her clothes when she goes in the bathroom. I'm going to conquer over the head and I'm going to go back out and be like, I'm sorry, Judy could not finish the show tonight. It will be me because I just miss singing. And I, but I didn't know I would miss it until I stopped doing it because I had been in bands since I was 17, you know, on and off. And so I was glad and, and, I get, oh, because I would always have to make these calls like to Empty Bottle, like, hey, did you get the posters for the Mekon show or, you know, Moonshine Willie or whatever? And Bruce Finkelman at Empty Bottle, he, he would always say like, yeah, I got those, but when are you playing my club? Because I'd played his club before. I lived here and I was like, I'm not doing music right now. And then I called one day in like fall of 97. I was like, hey, okay, so we got the Whiskey Town Flyers. And yeah, yeah. And um, you better get me some posters for your show. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, um, you're playing here November 17th. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's like, look in the reader. And he put me, put me. <laughs> Just you? It just yeah. said Kelly Hogan, yeah. Empty so, Bottle, November 17th? I remember, yeah. And I That's like the Girl Scout story. It's like, so wait, nuts, it's, right? It, it's like, in, you know, it's a great scene in the second act of the movie now. Well, and we were in the, did you ever go to the old Bloodshot offices? We called Das Boat. It was in the basement at 905 Addison or whatever it was. It was just a basement, a yeah. really long basement. I don't think I was like in there, but yeah. Like where you just touch the ceiling. And, and I remember putting the phone down and I... Nan Warshaw was over there and I was like, Nan, do you know anybody who plays guitar? And she's like, well, Brett Sparks from Handsome Family might be able to help you. And so I called Brett Sparks and I knew Brett Sparks already from because the Rocketeens had gotten the Handsome Family into our sold out show at the Claremont Lounge down down in Atlanta when they were opening for Wilco. And I loved them, too. And I'd kind of met them a couple of times from being at their shows. So, yeah, I went over to Brett's house and we learned a set of songs on guitar and me singing and we played that show on november 17th and and then i just started back from there so wow yeah. and then the first album you did here was with john langford and the pine mm -hmm. valley cosmonauts um yes yeah drunkards blues at king size yeah that's where i met ken sluter the engineer and all those folks and i had already been meeting steve goulding and you know john rice and all those guys so heavenly how'd you get connected with um john uh through bloodshot like i met him a couple times but i remember i had a really shitty car like some chevy chevy boiled peanut 2000 or 19 i love the chevy 80, peanut. you know it was the, like the size it was the so, 80s chevy peanut it was, was so a good one. terrible and so i think one day I was like, I broke down coming. I was living in Logan Square and I broke down on the way to Bloodshot. 
And I guess I must, I went in one of those like foremost liquors with the bar attached to it, like the daytime where all the mailmen are drinking before they deliver your mail. Right. And I called Langford and I was like, ah, I'm stuck. Can you give me a ride? You know, it was, oh, it was super cold too. It was like dead of winter and snowing. So he came and met me at foremost liquors. I remember Quincy was on the TV and like some of the guys were like, Quincy, don't go in there. I remember we were watching Quincy with all these drunk people. And of course we had to have a beer, but when he got there, but he was, he, that, that was when he's like, he said something like, Hogus, you should do a record or, you know, oh, that's when he, oh, that was after the Drunkard's Blues thing. So he's like, Hogus, you should do a record. I was like, oh, Pine Valley Cosmonauts. He's like, no, you should do a whole record and, and I should, you know, we should do this. I was like, okay. So it was just like a weird thing, but he and I just got to know each other from, bloodshot events and things like that and south by southwest and and then yeah but we were just tight tight buds watching quincy with the hobos and then that's when i he planted the seed for my first solo record with them so were you writing on your own at this point i don't write man i don't i only write at gunpoint it's all well, that's what i was wondering because because you did all that stuff with bill and mm-hmm. you know i mean I find it really hard. Like, that just worked so well. Like, I was never intimidated with Bill. I was never embarrassed to show him things. And I've never really found... It's kind of Andy Hopkins, my enabler, who also moved up from Atlanta after I did. And he was my guitar player here. He's amazing. We kind of did some things together. Or he would help me flesh out stuff. But it was just never that symbiotic thing, like falling off a log with Bill. I've never had that since. So, But I was writing a few things. So I wrote some songs for my records and stuff. But it's the Loretta Lynn ratio, man. There you go. She only writes like 20%. Well, did you find that you just got more out of interpreting other people's songs than writing your that's own that's just what comes naturally to me that's well and sally timms i remember we were talking about it right around that time and she uh, i can't do sally's accent but she was like oh i let the songwriters write the songs they do it so much better than i do it's pretty good <laughs> and, oh it's terrible no it's pretty good it's better than i would do <laughs> i mean like here's sally timms oh where's it <laughs> i'm not gonna do it It'll be like Dick Van Dyke because and Mary everyone, Poppins. She's British. Mary Poppins. I can't do it. But anyway, so but she <laughs> she and I commiserated on that. It's and I always say like Bob Dylan just ruined it for everybody for cover singers because after that you, you didn't get have any cred unless you wrote your own songs. I mean I, I I'm boiling that down to a very simple syrup, but but you know what I mean? Like before, yeah. like everybody would cover yesterday or everybody because, like the song. No, it would come like out. Aretha Franklin, Songbook, you, you know, know respect. Yeah. She didn't write respect, right. but. So, she owned respect. Right. Well, I'm I'm doing um, the calendar show at Fitzgerald's this December 17th, and I got assigned Dolly Parton this year. How do you pick just two Dolly Parton songs to sing? Oh, my God. So I thought, okay, I'll narrow it down to one she wrote because she writes the great songs. But And even then, you know, you're spoilt for choice. But some of the ones that I thought she wrote, she didn't, she didn't, she didn't write as many as I thought. You know what I mean? Once I started researching it, I thought she wrote a lot more on her albums, but same ratio, same Loretta ratio. Right. So anyway. You can and, choose one she didn't write. No. Well, I give you permission to do well, that. Well, I asked, I asked, because uh, it's been so hard to choose. So I asked, uh, I wrote to Chris Lee and, and Heather and I was like, do you have any requests for the Dolly? Oh, and I already know I, you can't do the one that they're going to show the film of because they show a little vintage film. So I'm not, I won't say what it is. I don't know when this is coming out, but I don't want to give away any details. But I, I kind of, I wanted to do the super campy, uh, why'd you come in here looking like that? Because I like the way she goes here in that. Yeah. And it's it's got funny little, oh, what's the line? 
Uh, he's got a wandering eye and a traveling mind, a big ideas and a little behind. <laughs> so out with a dip. So I was thinking about that one at first, but she didn't write it. But that's Heather's request. So I am going to do. Why'd you come in here looking like that? It's going to be great. fun. And then her other request was another. Not it was just a classic Mule Skinner blues where whew, I might die. She hold, you have to hold notes for like 14 years in that song. It's crazy. And then another one I like is because um, it's so bald-faced, 1970s horny. And it's a song she wrote. And it's like, it's all wrong, but it's all right. And she's in the singles bar trying to get this guy to go home or she's going over to his house. But it's so it's so Fern singles bar. It's so... 72 but well in the one the one i really like she didn't write it either and and uh kenny rogers in the first edition did it first and it's that it just kills me every time because it's i've been on the road like my whole life you know that um it's uh oh but you know that i love you you know that song i don't it's i'm trying to anytime i try to think of something i'll blank out but it's uh uh, yes, I'm on the road once again, it seems. All I've left behind is a trail of broken dreams. But you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Oh, I love you. And it's just about being on the road and alone in the room. And and then there's an amazing, well, it's got a cool bridge, right. too. And she, I know you're a bridge fan like me. If only I could find my way back to the time where the problems of this world had never crossed my mind and the answers could be found in children's nursery rhymes i'd come running back to you i'd come running back to you and i'm just like (laughs) it just kills me it kills me but I probably won't do that one because I might start crying. So oh. I'm gonna do. Why'd you come in here looking like that? Because it's fun and it's Heather's request. And I'll. I've done um, that song "Here I Am," which I guess they used in that movie Dumplin', which I haven't seen. It was Dumplin'? a couple, couple years ago. It was a movie called Dumplin'. Uh, my boyfriend Mike Bulington, we bought a 45 of "Here I Am" by Dolly Parton. She wrote that one too. But if you play that 45 on 33 it sounds like this undiscovered soul band it's so good it's so good so i and so i used to cover it in my band and slowed down not singing it like this but we slowed it down where it was because it's got these great backup vocals it sounds like the when you do play the 45 at 33 it sounds like the five blind boys doing the backup vocals like here i am and ooh, and it just it kind of sounds like a gospel guy on quaaludes and it's so awesome nobody nobody wanted you to do uh, I Will Always Love You? Oh, I'm not touching that with a 50,000 <laughs> foot pole. Or I Jolene. Like jo- I used to do Jolene and Jody Grind, but that was a long time ago, and it's a great song, but... No, it's a little overexposed. Yeah, but no. But I could see you going, and uh, oh, take it back God. from Whitney. No, no way, no way. I've seen Porter Wagner in his boxer shorts, and that's as close as I want to get to that song, by accident. Anyway... Because that song, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, because she wrote it to Porter Wagner as it's like their breakup song. Yeah. And I don't know. I thought. When did you it. see him in his boxer shorts? <laughs> we were, I was playing at the Opry. And it, have you been to the Opry, the, like the Grand Old Opry? I have Opry not, Land? but I've been to Nashville now. No. So like Opry, you know, they have it at the. I was Opry, at the Ryman. No, well, this, you know, it's at the new Opryland where they right. moved it in 74 and. 
I've played like outdoors where they have like little bands play on the plaza, but then you get to you get a dressing room backstage and you get to watch the Opry from the side and it's really cool. And um, you can walk down the hall and, you know, and I think it's like Porter Wagner's dressing room door open. It was his wife going out to like and she's like, well, I'm going to go get blah, blah, blah. And he's like, well, I told you blah, blah, blah. he was putting on his rhinestone pants <laughs> and his I was expected his boxer shorts to be rhinestone, too. But no, they, Do they probably, have little hearts on them. No, just regular old fruit of the loom. But boxer shorts. Thank God. Thank God. Right. But yeah, he was like putting on, pulling up his pants. Like, and he's like, I told you, my mom, well, I'll be right, blah, blah. And then she like shut the door. And I was just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I just saw Porter Wagner. And you didn't underwear. go write a song called Porter Wagner's Boxer Shorts? No, I haven't so far. I haven't. I need a, like I said, Porter's I, Boxers. I need That's a better. collaborator. I All right. I'll, collaborator. I'll help you with that. So at, at what point did you sort of make the, the, I don't know, have the revelation or whatever that you really liked? collaborating and singing harmonies and you know being you know in groups with other people where you're not just in front well the Rocketeens for sure like I remember because I didn't know what the hell I was doing and like I think one of the first times in practice where we all ended a song at the same time we were like yeah because we were trying you know it's like that felt awesome like to be part of the bottom of the pyramid and then I don't know. I started. I had a little side thing with a friend of mine, Amy Pike, in Atlanta. Although that wasn't really harmony, though. We traded leads. She's not really. She's a great singer. She's a great singer. And we got together, and I was like, "Well, let's harmonize." She's like, "I don't know how to do that." And that also was like, "What? How can you not? How can you sing so great?" But that is a thing. Like harmony singing is. You can teach it because there is math behind it, but it's it's just an innate thing. It's yeah. weird. It's really hard to teach somebody the the unknowns of it or the little intuitive parts no, of it. No, it's totally so, not. You know. So we kind of so we ended up just singing leads every now and then, or and even you know some like I was like, well, you sing and I'll harmonize to you, but then if somebody they'll it's weird they'll start singing your note like they can't stay on their note, so it's just a weird it's a weird thing. So I guess. I don't know. Definitely Rocketeens as far as just feeling in a band. And I'd, I'd always loved harmonizing. When you're singing with Nico Case, Rocketeens doesn't have that kind of vocal no, interplay. No, But when you're singing with like Nora O'Connor or mm -hmm. Nico or, you know, Mavis, there's there's a way that your voice fits in with other voices that creates this whole That's other what thing. I live for. And I I'm live, sort of wondering when you got to, when you were like, oh, this is like we're creating this other thing when I do I this. I guess when I moved here and I started, because I guess when I was... Because I got to work with Edith Frost when I moved here, and she recommended me for this project with her and Archer Pruitt and uh, Will Oldham and uh, oh, the other guy from Drag City. This weird little EP we did, but that was amazing and just exploring like all these different ways to do harmony because we were doing these weird things with, and the lyrics were even just nonsense sounds, not words, and just working with people in Chicago, I guess, and making records. And then once I met Nora. I was just like, never leave my side. Like when you get to sing with somebody that just like, whoosh, like it just right. like, you know, work, we worked together last night and I was just like, I, I, especially after the pandemic, like I will never, I never did take it for granted, but now I just like, I was just like squeezing her arm last night. Like, ah, cause we've gotten to do a couple sessions together in the past couple of weeks. So how did you two meet? Um, we, well, I met her, uh, cause Bloodshot signed the Blacks. She was playing in the Blacks. So I just met her like at a Bloodshot thing where we went to get drinks with them and saw the Blacks, but she was singing with Andrew Bird. And then 
Andrew asked me to also come join and sing. So it was just like a rehearsal at the hideout, I think. And I got up on stage and we were singing like on the way to Greenland. And we were just and then it's when you're blending and you be like, wait, was I singing that note or were you singing that note? Like you don't even you sang it, but you don't even know because you're blending and it's right. this weird thing. And she's like, I don't know. So we just ever since then, I just want to handcuff her to me. And same with Edith Frost. It was the same weird blend and. Yeah, so I guess just doing stuff like that here. And then then once I met uh, Scott Legan, Scott Legan and I got thrown together in 2002, three. And it just, that was another thing, like never leave my side. That was so like separated at birth. So you met Nora O'Connor, yep. you met Scott Legan. So you're yep. three fifths of the way to the flat five. Yeah, yeah. And Scott Legan and Nora and I had a band called The Lamentations where we uh, we were going to open for the Five Blind Boys at Hot House. And we wanted to have a gospel band, but we didn't. I said, we had none of the songs can mention Jesus because I always I hate the way how divisive religion can be. So let's sing love and gospel, but none of the songs can say Jesus loves me, this I know or whatever. So that was kind of we, we had fun doing that. And then I guess why did the flat five form? I don't know. I think it was just supposed to be for one gig and it was me and Nora and then um Gerald Dowd and then uh, Scott was like I know this guy Casey McDonough and so he came and then that forget it after that I I I want to kidnap them all I never ever I love singing with them more than anything else in my in my whole life and I, I enjoy those records but seeing you live is a totally other thing it's, it's so like it's just it's just like it's transformative and and not to not to downgrade the albums that you no, know, well, I, they both have world in the title we they're feel both the excellent. same way we feel the same way but but when you're but when you're actually performing and you sort of just kind of see and hear and you're in the presence of like your voice is blending and and Casey's got wonderful and Scott I mean they, I mean everyone's got great harmonies it's crazy and, and Casey's you're like, the secret you, weapon man yeah and you just don't get to hear those kind of harmonies right in band like like I mean I love bands like the zombies oh, and yeah, so yeah so when when you guys are kind of hitting those like mid late 60s kind of things That's and our... then and then coming up with Chris Legan songs yeah. and you know, it's it just it just works in this way that's that's you know just kind of enchanting, you know. Well, and I don't use the word enchanting, well, so there you go. We're in. I mean, we we always say we love us. <laughs> we we love us because we. I mean, we will. We'll practice for six or seven hours and just, and it'll be, yeah, the songs we're supposed to practice. But if anybody says anything or starts just a line of something else, we all just fall in and we'll sing, you know, Three Dog Nights, just any like, song. Like we can. Here comes the Left Bank song. We can, yeah, or just, we'll do Walk Away Renee just for our own like boners. It's just like so. We just all are so into it, and we, and we have the shared like we're all around. Well, now Alex, our drummer, is younger, but but he's an old young guy. So we all have the same kind of shared experience and same time period in music, things that we like. And if we got to a show and nobody came, we would still play the show. So it's just we just love it. We love doing that and exploring all these different ways to make the sounds and just because because of the musicians in that band that are so great we can if we think of something we can usually like mostly pull like we can do it because scott knows how to play all that stuff and scott well i mean scott plays everything he plays the drums he plays bass he plays he plays everything nora pretty much plays everything casey plays everything alex plays everything i bring the snacks yeah i mean scott and casey are half of nrbq right right it's yeah they're out right now so 
Yeah. And we, then and then you and you were just out with Mavis Staples. Yeah, I just came back from Lawrence, which, Kansas, which is a different kind of song, mostly than what the Flat Five does. But yeah. so how did all right? So how did you connect with Mavis? Um, when I well, the first time I met her, I was. Do you know the Buck Owens things they used to do at Shubas? It right. was like a benefit, and so that's right when I first moved here, and they uh, I had fallen in with Pine Valley Cosmonauts, and John Rice was part of that. Buck Owens thing so he's like you should do a song and and I, when I found out Mavis was on the bill I was like oh my god oh my god because I knew she lived here and she was huge for me and and to be in a space as small as Shuba's that club and yeah. Mavis I remember I, I remember well I, re, I remember a lot of stuff but I sat they used to have booths on the left side and I sat in a booth and then I started hearing conversation behind me at the next booth and I was like oh my god Mavis Staple that's Mavis she's sitting I don't know I think she might have been talking to Greg Cott I don't know but she she and Yvonne were sitting there and I remember she somebody was saying well wasn't Pop supposed to come and she's like oh Pops she's like I got I told him so many times stop cleaning your ears with your car keys <laughs> so he like hurt his ear Oh. He had to go like he was. He wasn't there. That wasn't I told even him a metaphor. So many times, stop cleaning your ears with your car keys. There's another lyric. So for he you. cut his ear or something. Oh, so and of course, Mavis was on you know near the end, and I was one of the first people. And I went up and did big in Vegas in the key of A. I don't know why I remember that. And I remember I was super nervous. And I sang Big in Vegas, and, and I had a drink ticket in my bra, and I was walking past those booths to go to the bar, because I was just like, oh my God, I just sang in front of all these people I don't know, and Otis Clay was mm. there, and all these people. And somebody grabbed my arm, and I was like trying to pull my arm away, like, I'm trying to get to, the, <laughs> I need to get to the bar. And I look back, and Mavis Staples had a hold of my arm, and she was pulling my arm. She's like, that was so good. You did so good. And I was just like, oh my God. I had a, I had a, this is my, this is the sweet meat, the, the easily bruisable sweet meat on my upper arm. I had a Mavis <laughs> bruise. Like, I should have gotten a tattoo outline wow, of it the next yeah. day. But yeah, so that was the first time I met her. That was magical to me. And then it was, um, uh, me and uh, Dave Hoekstra asked me to come do a song for the PBS, did a little documentary on the Staple Singers that was coming out on the local Chicago affiliate. And they did a release party at Fitzgerald's. And he said, I want you to come um, do a song. And of all the songs, I picked Somebody Saved Me, which is like a super early Staples song i thought i probably picked it because it was it didn't need a band and so i was just like me andy hopkins on guitar and i got nora to come sing a harmony with me and we practiced but we went out there to fitzgerald's and speaking of it was like otis clay jerry butler gene chandler mm. the entire staples family like all of these people and oh paul Seabar and me and so i, I was like I'm going to make banana pudding because in case I totally screw up, they'll be like, well, she couldn't sing, but her pudding's pretty good. So I did. <laughs> I made like giant trays of banana, Southern banana wow. pudding. And I, so that, cause we had snacks backstage at Fitzgerald's and I had it out. I remember Otis Clay was just like, oh, he was eating pudding like crazy. I was like, cool. All right. This is going to work out. Otis Clay likes my pudding. He liked my pudding. So, so we did, we did the song. And so I met her kind of reconnected again. And then uh, Nicholas Tremulous had the waltz, the waltz things at the Metro, the benefits. And she was on one of those and he's like, do you remember Kelly? And I was like, yeah, we did somebody save me at Fitzgerald. Oh yeah. And Nick was, was like, they're going to do it tonight. You should sing with them. Maybe was like, I don't remember that. I don't remember the words. And right before we went on, 
like this top of the stairwell where you're coming on stage at Metro and I heard a voice and I looked down and there Mavis was coming up the stairs very slowly. It was before she had her knees replaced. Mm. And she's like, I guess I'm going to try it. And I was like, Nora, Nora, she's coming. (laughs) She's coming up here right now. And so she came up and we were in that little alcove right off the stage. And I was like, oh shit. Cause her part's my part. Right. So she took my part. And Nora had her part, and I was like, y'all just go, and I'll sing where you're not. And so we did, and we went on stage and did it. And from that, we were kind of friends, and we'd see each other at shows. But and then, So that was like your natural harmony that you just found spur I was of singing, the moment. You, you, were, yeah. you were singing without knowing what your part was going to be, yeah. not having rehearsed it, right. with Mavis Staples on yeah. the, on the Metro the stage. She took the lead. But you still fit in. You yeah, still I figured sang, out a way to do that's it. That's just, yeah, I'm, a, so that's har- I'm awesome. a harmony jerk. And so... And it was just thrilling. There's some pictures of it, and I'm just kind of like, oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah, and then Jeff Tweedy asked me to come sing, be a singer, on the first record she did at The Loft, uh, You're Not Alone. Right. And I was like, really? Wow. That was... Oh, and she... I had opened for her a couple of times before then. She had asked me to open for her, like, at... Um, Park West and stuff. So we sort of had a, an acquaintance. But once once I worked on the Tweety record, and then I did the two subsequent ones he did there. I was a singer on both of those. And, and then I became the pinch singer, because after I had worked with her for a while, I knew her repertoire. And sometimes Vicki Randall, her other female singer, couldn't be on the shows. So I would just like... Whew come in I'd never had a rehearsal and I would always tell Donnie Gerard the other singer like Donnie I'm just gonna keep singing by the second chorus I'll know where I'm supposed to go you know I'll just be clapping and by the second chorus so because Mavis doesn't do sound checks generally so I never got to practice with her so wow. so f- since yeah since like 2011 I'd been the pinch singer like fairly regularly at least once or twice a year but then this past january they asked me to join the band so and i just thought okay i'll be touring with an 83 year old lady i guess i'll need to get a i have a second job i run linda berry's etsy shop and stuff but maybe i need a third job or i'll pick up some aluminum cans off the side of the road because i'm sure we won't be touring much oh my god mavis is unstoppable Mavis, sit down. <laughs> She's like, I've been to O'Hare every week for like the last nine weeks. I'm like Platinum United. She just won't stop. And she's just going. I love that. And she sounds yeah. great. She sounds great. I mean, she's 83, but I heard like some of her you know, re- most recent record and she sounds like Mavis. She sounds amazing. And like the show she played in Lawrence, Kansas, she was like hilarious and singing her butt off. And she's, you know, she's 83. Like I remember, well, she sat down a couple of times. She always has this bench. She's like, I had to sit down. And we're like, that is fine sit on down we you know sing sitting down nobody's gonna care if you're sitting down and she just tore it up and she's making these jokes and just sharp as a tack so i can't even i can't believe i'm sitting here speaking aloud that i am in mavis staples band like that means that's so huge to me i mean i idolized the staple singers growing up like as a little kid even like all the hits and then the more i got to know of them as an adult like all their early stuff and i just it's just crazy that's what, crazy, man. What's she like as a band leader? Oh, she's awesome. And well, and Rick Holmstrom's kind of like the band, you know, director, like the musical thing, but she's the be all end all in. 
Well, I was talking, Jeremy Lemos, our sound guy, and Sandra Williams, the other backup singer, we were driving to the airport the other day, and she said, yeah, people ask me, like, what's Mavis like? And and Jeremy's like, yeah, people ask me that. And he's like, you have no idea. She's way, it's way beyond, she's way cooler than you even think she's cool. I think she's pretty cool. She's the best. Yeah, she's the best. I love her so much. And just knowing her and Yvonne, and yeah, she's just, she's a trip. And just super, oh, very pro and amazing ear, like harmony ear. I learned so much from her about the note less taken, you know, like the cool note, the weird notes and stuff. Mm. So, no, she's she's fantastic. The other, <laughs> the other we we do this song. Um, oh, what's it called? We're starting to end the set with. Um, we got work to do. I can't remember the real title of it, but for the entire song, we're clapping double time. And like, and there was a, Sandra's like, how are your arms after halfway through the song? I'm like, I just kind of lay them on my boobs and try to like, you know, rest them a little bit. And then we, we, she said, well, what if we do this? What if you clap on, we, we each take half of it. And I said, okay. I said, do you want the white numbers or the black numbers? And I said, I'll take the two and the four. She's like, dang it. I got the one and the three. So we were doing that way. We're getting double time, but we're only doing half as much. So the song starts and we have our little system going and Mavis looks over and she just goes, at us and we're like god dang it so we were busted immediately and we were both just like fitness 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 because the song lasts like 10 minutes and you're just like but mavis just mavis she heard it instantly that the note that the beats were there she looked over and she's just like ladies like so busted so anyway it's it's amazing and there and it's just it's funny i mean we did six weeks in a bus with i had that was the longest bus tour i ever did and to like for mavis you know being 82 turned 83 on tour and doing six weeks in 110 degree heat like opening for bonnie raid every day outdoors it was i don't see how she does it man She's got the back suite in the bus. She's back there. I make she gets fresh flowers in her dressing room, so I bring them from the venue and I set them in her back bedroom on the bus and get all the flowers all nice. And then she likes pickles. I bring her pickles and sometimes a margarita. And she's back there watching Judge Judy. She loves Judge Judy. <laughs> she has she wears a shirt that says only Judy only Judy can judge me. <laughs> and, and so we just we're all very protective of her and keep her going. But man, it's she's she's and people were asking me too because i was um i started subbing last summer like when like omicron or delta whatever was surging they're like why is mavis staples touring right now in this in the covid stuff she's like 82 years old and i was like you know like she's compelled i mean she she was in the civil rights movements covid schmovid man are you kidding and and plus too like she she's singing these songs she's sung a bunch like you know her freedom march songs and tears will be rolling down her face like she's she's feeling it just the same which is what everybody should try to do when you're singing the music you know you're you're feeling it every single time so she means it i feel like she's like going door to door she's just like knock knock peace love understanding knock knock you know so she's compelled she she won't stop uh, that's how i, I don't want to and did you guys have any like COVID outbreaks on the tours um three of us got uh and COVID's so weird right so me and sandra and greg the bass player got COVID. After Jazz Fest in New Orleans, I got Cajun Spice COVID. And, uh, but then we were all moving as like this eight-piece unit and really careful, but only three of us got it. So, and you know, 
who we don't know. And speaking of Paul Seabar, like Son and I had gone out to dinner with him after our show. There, we hugged him and stuff. He didn't get it. And we, I guess, were, you know, and then me and Son and Greg got home and I was like, I feel really tired. And then I got a text like, How's, how are you guys feeling? I'm not feeling so good. Like, oh, man. Yeah. So so three of us got it. We, we missed a show, which was a bummer because it was Huntsville and drive-by truckers were on the bill. And so David Hood, the David Hood who played on I'll Take You There, filled in like 80-year-old awesome David Hood. Wow. I love him so much. So. So, yeah, but oh, that's as far as, oh, I think Rick had had it. Maybe the drummer hasn't had it. Mavis thinks she might have had it. But, yeah, we're still plugging along. It sucks. When you back out on the road with Mavis? Uh, this is the longest break since the start of the year. I won't go out again until December 8th, I think. We go, we do three dates. We usually do these little, like, one or two offs on the week. For me, that's... Since I live in Wisconsin, that's been the hardest part, actually, is the one-offs, because I'm used to going to O'Hare, and then three weeks later, I come back and I go home, you know, but now I drive two hours each way, once a week, every five to seven days. I know the bartenders in the Seagates ask for Gary at the United Club. What's that song? Can't be sung by two. Are you still doing stuff with Nico Case? No, not in a while. Nora's in her band now. So it was like a thing where I, I knew it was going to happen, too, because I was singing with Decembris for two album cycles, and their records were supposed to come out spaced apart, but Nico's kept getting delayed, and I was like, uh-oh. So it was like a logistic thing. So I think I saw you and Nora with the Decemberists mm-hmm. in Arizona at that that uh what was it the, the name of that baseball festival that oh gosh yes yeah. yeah that was a crazy day oh yeah yeah that was that was big that was a huge fest yeah we loved we loved it i love playing with decemberists it was very challenging and i kept our like the lyric notebook i think we knew and i'm not messing with you like 154 decemberist songs wow and we would get we'd look at the, you'd get the set list on your phone you'd be like have you ever heard of this? Have we done this song before? No. And we would have to look look it up and we'd be learning songs, putting on our makeup, trying to figure it out. So it was challenging and fun. So I we, love them. So you, would, when they record their next album or whatever, are you on that? Or no, no. We sort of, we, we did not expect to be asked back for a second album cycle. They had never done that before ever so they they trained us i think to, to you know when you you have to learn how to tour with people and stuff so and we just we love them and so we were psyched to be asked back for um i'll be your girl that second record right. we sang on and then we did that touring that that was a difficult touring thing where colin was having trouble with his voice and so we had to cut touring short and so that was just kind of a interrupt us kind of thing but then and then yeah they wrote us later like that winter that that was it but we knew it was coming would you do so. another kelly hogan album man right before the pandemic you know i just, i was like i'm gonna get a solo band and i'm gonna play and so i played the show at the hideout like sold out i went back to atlanta like it was a flesh casserole like full of every ex-boyfriend ever and then their families and all this stuff and and so i, I was like hashtag fellowship 2020 <laughs> 
was like, yeah, I'm going to put, no, you're not. No, you're like six weeks later, the pandemic was like, cocoon. But I was thinking about doing that. I've, there's, I've been talking to, well, actually, Patterson from Drive-By Truckers. We've been talking about doing a record, me with them, together for a while. I've always wanted to do this, like a, a Charlie Rich tribute by way of a tribute to his wife, Margaret Ann Rich, who wrote a lot of his best songs. I want to do a Margaret Ann Rich tribute kind of thing and then we're going to write some songs about i think um i've written a song with patterson before we did the song about big chestnut and i think i could write with them they don't scare me they do right. <laughs> but yeah yeah so we, we that's in that's we've definitely been talking about that for quite a while like over a year it's more of just finding some time to to do it especially because mavis won't sit down and they won't sit down and all that but i don't know i just like being in a band i like being in a band man but it was, I mean, I've done a few solo shows. I've tried to do some, but I've had to unbook them because Mavis keeps adding dates. But I got some solo shows in January. I'm playing at Judson and Moore, January 21st. And I'm, I usually, I was just going to do it with Scott League, and I'm like, let's get Joel Patterson in there, too, and just see how that is. So we're going to do that. That'll cool. be fun. But we'll see. Well, I can't wait to see you in all these different configurations and uh, hear you in them even more. But uh, Oh, man. Yeah. I can't believe you were there at, at the volleyball court in 1991 no, for South by Southwest. No, I was. That that was imprinted on me. I was like, because I was like. You and Greg Cott. I was we, so happy when I moved here. And I was like, I live in your town because I knew you guys. No, we. I remember going back to the hotel because we were, we were sharing the room and we were just like, that Kelly Hogan. Oh, my God. Like, we were just totally like <laughs> fanboys. So. Oh, man. And then so I was nice. just like, she's moving to Chicago. Yay. Well, because I started working at Bloodshot and I got, you know, my little press list and i was like i know that hey <laughs> right on it's been a long time man i've been alive a long time i'm all hoary h-o-a-r-y and the other one <laughs> so just like you know people ask my what's your advice for music and i'm like say yes <laughs> i always say say yes to things that that scare you because you never know or things that you think you can't do or that might be boring but i always say don't get don't wear your don't do anything where you have to wear knee pads you know what i mean like don't don't prostitute yourself but say yes to weird weird shit so if that makes any sense and get some sleep that's a good thing sleep is non-negotiable for singing it sucks guitar players can go out and do all they want to do and then and it sucks especially the older you get it's hard you gotta the bod Got a, what is that, Gail Davies, you know her, country artist. Her son is Chris Scruggs, who played in my band, and he plays with Marty Stewart. But she's very inspiring to me, like her voice. She's like, you know, for your range, use it or lose it, but you have to be careful how you use it, and that comes into play the older you get. Not to end on a bummer note, we can talk about boners some more <laughs> if you want, because I'm still super driven. I'm still... Do you do like vocal exercises every day or do you just sing? I mostly, I'm, I'm always singing. I'm always singing. So, yeah. Well, like, because I wake up singing a song every day. So, hot dogs, armor, hot dogs. And <laughs> I listen to me TV radio. I went to the dentist today and he's always got XRT on. And I forget what song, I was, what REM song was it? It wasn't one of the usual ones. It was like, oh, finally, it was, a, I can't remember what it was. But then they did a... Um, like the Lemonheads version cover. Anyway, when he's in my mouth with like all these tools and I'm going, like I'm singing and he's like, can you, Hogan, 
can't stop. I can't stop. So I'm harmonizing even with stuff in my mouth. Well, yeah. don't stop. I we can't. appreciate that you haven't stopped. Good luck stopping Keep going. me. I can't shut up. All right. Well, we're going to stop here. But thank you so much for uh, talking and doing this. Thanks for coming. That's all for episode 61 of Carol Pop. Thanks again to Kelly Hogan for sharing her music, stories, and dogs with us. You can follow her on Instagram at Hogan Here and check out her Facebook page at facebook.com slash Hogan Here. Go to flat5chicago.com to read more about the Flat Five and to listen to and to order its latest album, Another World, out now on Pravda Records. I recommend seeking out her solo albums as well, such as 2013's I Like to Keep Myself in Pain and 2001's Because It Feel Good. And grab any chance you have to see Hogan on stage, whether with Mavis Staples or the Flat Five or anyone else. On January 21st at Judson and Moore Distillery in Chicago, she'll be digging into her solo repertoire with Scott Legan and Joel Patterson. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who also recorded this episode on location. I try not to keep him in too much pain. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Caro Pop on Twitter at Caro Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Caro Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Caro Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Caro Pop conversation. Thanks.